Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco. Shortly after the California Supreme Court struck down the ban on same-sex marriage, Sokolo convened a brilliant panel, including historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurwitz and demographer Gary Gates, to discuss how gay identity emerged in California. Moderated by J. Edwin Bacon, Jr., rector at All Saints Church in Pasadena, California, this lively exchange covers early activist organizations like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis, the rivalry between Los Angeles and San Francisco, and the distinct environment that put California at the forefront of gay rights. Recorded before a live audience at Arclight Hollywood as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is the Reverend J. Edwin Bacon, Jr., on to introducing the folks here at the table with me. On my far right is uh, Gary J. Gates, Senior Research Fellow at the UCLA School of Law. Dr. Gates is co-author of the Gay and Lesbian Atlas and is widely acknowledged as the nation's leading expert on the demography and geography of the gay and lesbian population. Prior to completing his PhD from the H. John Hines School of Public Policy, and management at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Gates facilitated the development of and co-authored a statewide HIV prevention plan for Pennsylvania. Gates' background includes a Master of Divinity degree from St. Vincent Seminary and a Bachelor of Science degree in Computer Science from the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. Dr. Gates' current research Projects include a series of studies exploring the demographics and economic traits of Asian Pacific Islanders, Latino Latinas, and African Americans in same-sex couples in California, a study of binational same-sex couples in the United States, and an NIH-funded research project comparing same-sex couples in the United States and Canada. To my left is Nan Alamilla Boyd, who received a BA from University of California, Berkeley in history and a PhD from Brown University in American Civilization. She's currently associate professor and chair of the Women's Studies Department at San Francisco State University, where she teaches courses in the history of sexuality, queer theory, historical methodology, and urban tourism. Her book, Wide Open Town, a History of Queer San Francisco to 1965, charts the rise of gay and lesbian politics in San Francisco. Her current research explores the history of tourism and how several San Francisco neighborhoods have become a nexus for transnational tourism. And last but certainly not least, to my immediate right, is Daniel Hurwitz, who received his PhD from UCLA in 2001 and taught for several years at Tulane University in New Orleans. He is the author of Bohemian Los Angeles and the Making of Modern Politics, as well as a book about gay and lesbian history in New York City. He lives in Manhattan and is an assistant professor at Hunter College there. Will you please welcome my fellow panelists? So we'd like to get at the heart of the matter, or begin to get at the heart of the matter. What I want to ask you three, if you could tell us something about the heart of your research. Maybe the books I've just described, or your current work. Daniel, may I begin with you, my friend? Sure thing. First, let me say what a pleasure it is to be here, and uh, how terrific to see all of you out there. The book that I finished last year, Bohemian Los Angeles, began with a question for me about the start of gay politics in this country, the start of, a, of the gay civil rights movement that clearly we're still living in the midst of. That movement, despite all we think we know about gay history, really started here in Los Angeles in 1950 when the first serious gay rights organization was formed here in Silver Lake, an organization called the Madison Society. And my book began with a question simply of, gee, why did that happen in L.A.? 
and why in 1950? Why was that the moment that gay politics began? And the heart of the book is not simply the story of how gay people became politically aware, but really for me, the, what I learned in working on the book was that gay politics, the emergence of gay politics in this country, was part of a wider change in American culture, American society, and American politics, in a change in which more and more Americans became curious about the political implications of their inner lives, their emotions, their desires, their identities. Gay politics, starting here in 1950, was expressive of this change in American politics. But in many ways, what I argued in the book was that the start of gay politics in 1950 was really the beginning of what we now call identity politics in this country. Thanks. Let's go to the other historian on the panel, Nan. Okay, I started my research on the history of uh, gay and lesbian communities in San Francisco when I was a grad student and uh, kind of casting about for a project. I had grown up in the Bay Area and I had always been curious about why San Francisco was such a gay town. It just seemed to me that everywhere I went, if I said that I was from San Francisco, people would say, oh, there's a lot of gay people there, right? And, you know, it was the thing that was most commonly associated with the city as far as I could tell, and no one had tried to uh, write a history of that or try to explain that question about why San Francisco had created a culture that was uh, conducive to the development of gay and lesbian politics and why it attracted so many queer migrants through the mid-20th century. And so I set about to answer that simple question, why San Francisco or why is San Francisco so gay? And in doing my research, there were sort of two ideas that were floating about at the time that were just the way in which people explained that question. And one had to do with, well, there was another one, a third one, about the gold rush. But in the, the literature that I was reading, most people were explaining it as a result of World War II demographic changes, that there was something about wartime mobilization that had sort of created this nexus of queer culture and community in San Francisco because the city was the, the port through which a lot of traffic went into the Pacific Theater and then returned. And then the second idea or thesis about why San Francisco was so gay was that, like Daniel was explaining earlier, that it had been the home or the seat for some very important early gay and lesbian civil rights organizations, also called homophile organizations. And by 1955, San Francisco was the home of, of the two major uh, homophile organizations. The Mattachine had moved from L.A. to San Francisco in 1953, and in 1955, the Daughters of Belitis, which was the first lesbian civil rights organization, had you know, come into being in San Francisco. And so San Francisco had developed this reputation as the, as the home of early gay and lesbian civil rights movements or homophile movements. So those were the two theories that were out there, something about World War II or something about these early political movements. And I set about to sort of challenge both of those theories. And what I did was I grounded my explanation in um, two phenomena, and one was about the kind of policing structures that existed in San Francisco were unique. Mm. Secondly, I looked at um, what I called bar-based activism and bar life, and that there was a really vibrant and resistant social and cultural movement in bars that was taking place before even the homophile movements uh, started to coalesce. For instance, in 1949, this guy, uh, Saul Stuman, who was uh, a bar owner, and he was the bar owner of this really cool place called the Black Cat Bar, which had been in existence way back prior to Prohibition. He got shut down for selling alcohol to homosexuals, to known homosexuals. And so he decided to defend the case, and he challenged it, and it went all the way to the California Supreme Court. And in 1951, the California Supreme Court ruled in a, in a decision called Stuman versus Riley, that it was okay for homosexuals to assemble in public spaces like bars and taverns. So this is what I mean by bar-based activism. So it was sort of an insurgency that was stemming out of places that we don't normally call political or um, we don't normally associate with with real politics. And so I sort of set that alongside the early civil rights organizations, the homophile organizations, and I found the bar-based ba activism much more vibrant and much more um, exciting. And so I argue in my book that it's, it's those movements that really kind of push the wheels of progress forward. I don't want to go to, go to Gary yet before I ask you about the police structures. I mean, that's a fascinating 
right. uncovering. Yeah, okay, so um, what that has to do with, and yeah. this gets kind of, you know, arcane because it's like the minutia of historical analysis, but the period in, in U.S. history where it was illegal to, to make and consume alcohol prohibition mm-hmm. ended in 1933, and when it ended, states in the United States all kind of decided how to regulate alcohol, you know, how to kind of control alcohol sale and consumption Mm -hmm. in different ways. And the state of California did it differently than most places. It sort of couched its alcohol control agency within um, its tax board, the the State Board of Equalization, Mm -hmm. until 1955. And so from 33 to 55, the state of California was much more interested in the money it would make from alcohol sale than actually policing, you know, how people (laughs) gathered in bars or drank or what they did inside those bars. So in other places, I think California was one of 10 states that did this kind of emphasis on on taxing and sales. And so that really gave Californians a different way to... Mm -hmm to deal with, uh, with alcohol in places like San Francisco that had uh, resisted prohibition. And this is kind of one of the points of difference maybe that we can talk about. L.A. was really different from San Francisco in this way. San Francisco never complied with prohibition through the whole period. And so it was sort of set up for uh, a post-prohibition kind of flourishing of queer culture. Um, and then the policing apparatus really didn't get kicked in until the, until the 50s when California was like, oh, I guess we better do a better job hmm. at this. And they created this other organization, which still exists today, called the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, or ABC. I'm sure you are some people may be familiar with it. Yeah. All Episcopalians are interested in that. Um, <laughs> You're listening to Gay L.A. versus Gay San Francisco with historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurwitz and demographer Gary Gates, moderated by the Reverend J. Edwin Bacon, Jr. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Next time on Day to Day, surfs up, but spirits are down. You know, there's a downturn in the economy and the surfboards are feeling it. With high oil prices, surfing's no longer a bargain and it's taken a toll on everything from tourism to the local surf shop. There's nothing about this business that's gotten less expensive. A rough ride for the surf industry next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. A number of Democratic members of Congress think it's time to challenge the military's don't ask, don't tell policy. I'm Larry Mantle. On the next Air Talk, we'll have a debate on whether it's time to change that policy, which keeps those in the military from revealing their sexual orientation. We'll also talk with David Marinus, author of Rome 1960, the Olympics that changed the world. Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. How about a little political matchmaking? Who will be standing next to John McCain for the big balloon drop in Minnesota come September? One name keeps coming back, the man McCain beat, Mitt Romney. Would Massachusetts be a good political pairing for Arizona? I'm Pat Morrison. Who would have thought after the millions of hazardous toys recalled last year that there'd be millions more this year? What happened to all the supposed new safeguards? Find out here Monday beginning at 1 p.m. If you have a gas guzzler that needs to retire, we're here to help. Go to kpcc.org and learn how to donate your old car to KPCC. All you do is fill out a short form. We'll take care of the rest, from arranging the pickup to sending you a tax receipt. Your car donation helps pay for KPCC programming and news coverage. Plus, you get an income tax deduction. 
Learn how it works at kpcc.org support. Thanks. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now we return to Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco with historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurwitz and demographer Gary Gates, moderated by the Reverend J. Edwin Bacon, Jr. So, Gary. Yes? Demographics. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, well, I, I work at the UCLA School of Law, and I'm always the non-lawyer on the panel, and now I'm in a panel with historians, and I'm the non-historian on the panel, so a familiar role for me. But the way I, well, I won't get into grand detail, but a lot of my life is, I'm a bit of an accidental tourist in my life, and, and I got into this subject largely because when I went to CMU, there were a couple guys there doing some work on studying same-sex couples in the census, and they heard this gay guy was coming into the PhD program, and they thought, ah, maybe he'd be interested in that. And I developed my credibility with my advisors when, so we were the first group to really, there's, I won't go into great detail, but there's a way in the census to, to starting in 1990 where you could for the first time identify same-sex couples who were not simply roommates, that who considered themselves either, well in that case they considered, they called the person a partner, not just a roommate. And so we were one of the first groups to analyze those data. And I told my advisors, none of whom were gay, I said, well, when we look at particularly the, the female, we were looking at geographic distribution, which was one of the great things you can do with census. And I said, well, you'll find high percentages of lesbian couples. It will be highly correlated with the presence of Native American jewelry. And, <laughs> and they looked at me and just said, you're completely insane. And, <laughs> I, and I even said it completely jokingly. And it turned out that it was actually pretty much right. <laughs> that you, you, you got, could put a line in the census about what kind of jewelry you had. Right, I mean, but, but you found high concentrations in places like New Mexico. I mean, I knew, I sort of had some intuition about how female couples in the places they lived might be different from where male couples lived. And I said, that's going to be one of the, the differences. And so anyway, suddenly they thought, oh, this guy actually kind of knows something. And so that, that started my career. But on a more serious note, what I try to do is that uh, one of the issues around sexual orientation is, that, uh, the, is this theme of kind of invisibility. And we talk about things like coming out and, and making, you know, as we look at demographic traits, sexual orientation is one that is not simply immediately apparent. It's not like race, ethnicity, which even that isn't, isn't as immediately apparent as some might want to make it. But the truth is you can't, it's, it's a lot more difficult to hide characteristics like your age, like your race and ethnicity, like your, your sex or gender. Um, those things, if, if you want to kind of disguise them, it takes a lot more work potentially than sexual orientation. And so it's a, the theme of invisibility and, and making a population visible is, is what intrigued me. And it turns out that in data, as someone who's also kind of a data geek, uh, that there's a systematic often um, way in which gay people are constantly made invisible in data, um, not the least of which is that questions around sexual orientation just aren't asked. And so I began a career of trying to say, well, can we get these questions, can we get people to start asking these questions, and we can, can we start to analyze data in a way that we can make this population more visible? And so our, my first sort of low-hanging fruit was census analysis. And now I've also, my new kind of area is to say there are invisible segments within this invisible community. So particularly around race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. I think that, that media focuses and, and a large amount of work around the gay community tends to focus primarily on white, mostly urban, mostly sort of higher socioeconomic status people. And so I devote a fair bit of my work also to trying to highlight how these other sort of invisible groups within an invisible population what they look like and, and who they are. So I think my contribution here can be 
perhaps to talk a little bit about some of the differences that I see demographically between LA and San Francisco, and then also perhaps some of the, the trends that I'm seeing uh, actually in both of these cities, and there are some significant ones around gay people, and I think it has to do with many, many more people becoming visible, and, as, and the visible gay community demographically is changing. Um, and it's changing sort of, so the visible gay community, I think, is becoming much more racially, ethnically diverse, much more socioeconomically diverse, much more politically diverse. And I think that, that creates challenges both for the gay and lesbian community, but also for, for the broader population. Is that diversity, would, would you say that, that that diversity hints at or points at some of the, the top one or two or three misapprehensions that people have? demographically about the gay and lesbian population? Or, or do you find yourself correcting other assumptions? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a whole, uh, the general population's image of, of the gay community largely is driven by things like Will and Grace or Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And, and in fact, LAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, they actually have done media analysis showing that the bulk of images of gay people in media are white, gay, urban men, and rich. So the stereotype, and, and it turns out that in the data, that, that one of the most persistent empirical findings about gay men is that they earn less than other men. It, every study ever done finds that, that gay men earn less than other men. And yet, there's a persistent stereotype of gay men as being wealthy. And what's interesting in challenging those stereotypes, like that one, or, or talking about race and ethnicity, it, it gets, curiously, people uncomfortable sort of on both sides. So I think within the gay community, we talked a little earlier when we were in the green room about there's been some investment in promoting the idea of gay people as a consumer market and as wealthy, and that that's a really good thing. And the problem is that it's, I mean, it's, it's not completely true. <laughs> and so when, you, when we come out with statements saying that, there are definitely elements of the community who get a little nervous that you know, their, their marketing efforts might be thwarted a little bit. So I think it does challenge. Anytime you kind of expose these things, it creates some challenges. Thanks. We're going to cover uh, four or five areas of our terrain, and then you can come back in with your Q&A. Uh, later on. So just because we're moving on doesn't mean that you're not going to have an opportunity to explore this a little more deeply where you might be interested. But, but now I want to go back to Daniel, who lives in New York and has roots in California and, as a historian, is saying that the history of gay politics really was forged in California rather than, or before it was, in New York. Are you saying that? And I mean, a lot of us think that New York is the leading kind of edge of, of gay civil rights. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, I think it's a puzzle. <laughs> I think when most people get asked if they know anything about gay politics in this country, the one thing they maybe know about is the Stonewall Riots in 1969 as being the moment when gay men and women decided to fight back against the kind of policing that Nan was mentioning. And the Stonewall Riots were, came out of a bar raid in Greenwich Village in New York. And it's a puzzle to me that somehow New York and the myth we've created about gay people living in New York has managed to dominate the history that average people know about gay life in this country. And that, in fact, both, I think, in Nan's book and in my book, there's evidence of gay people organizing political groups, gay people fighting with the police, gay people sitting down and negotiating policing uh, strategies um, in LA and in San Francisco before Stonewall. So to me, one of the things we were talking about earlier uh, this evening was to me the fact that we're seeing gay marriage happening here in California legalized well before. New York has just, the governor of New York has just said, we'll make it a state policy to recognize gay marriages formed in other states. But there's very, it doesn't look like the, the landscape isn't moving towards gay marriage being legalized there anytime soon. The fact that we're seeing that kind of political action happening here in California well before New York, to me, isn't surprising. To me, in fact, over the last 50 odd years, we've seen Californians take the lead in gay political activism, much more than New York. And I think 
since I'm not in New York, it's okay to say that. <laughs> Dan or Gary, would you add anything to that? Well, um, just a contrasting well, I would, California. I mean, I would follow up and say that what happened in San Francisco by 65, um, there was some, there was a, there was an event in, uh, in San Francisco in early 1965 that kind of did what Stonewall did, meaning it enabled negotiations with the police to take place so that the kind of harassment that was happening in the bars prior to 65 um, pretty much ended, and the pattern of police payoffs pretty much ended. Not that everything was you know, happy and peaceful, but what Stonewall accomplished had been accomplished in San Francisco by 65, which is why, and my book in 65, because I think the story that I want to tell kind of ends there. And, and in a way, I make a point of saying this endpoint, this marker in time, isn't reflective of a dominant history, which centers around New York events, that we need to kind of rethink those markers in time and, and reconsider sort of the meaning of some of the events that happened um, elsewhere. And then the other thing I'd like to say, so I'm agreeing with you there. The other thing I'd like to say is that I think <laughs> that disagree. it's really been San Francisco that in many ways has. <laughs> We're getting into that later, Dan. <laughs> but, but I would and, um, say you, you could go right down the line and you could look at the first gay press, the first gay church, a variety of firsts in gay political social life happened here in California. Those organizations were formed here. Somehow I think maybe we Angelinos or we Californians don't boast enough or celebrate enough our history, unlike New Yorkers. Maybe they do a better job telling their stories. But we've, we really got the ball rolling in so many ways here that it, we, I don't know, I think it, it asks us to think about, well, how has New York managed to steal the spotlight? And if, if you look at the court rulings, because the New York Supreme Court ruled on, on marriage equality and said no. And if you read their opinion and you read the California opinion, it's, a stark, stark contrast. And I think even the California opinion compared to Massachusetts, I'm not sure that people have begun to completely appreciate the kind of legal ramifications of the California ruling. It set up several sort of principles that have, have never occurred in jurisprudence around sexual orientation and is really kind of groundbreaking in, in the way it established the case for marriage equality, and in general for, for civil rights related to sexual orientation. And illustrate and, that, Gary. Well, I mean, one of the things is, there were two things. One is that the, the court basically said, there's a, a term in, in legal jurisprudence called strict scrutiny, and it's if the state passes a law, what's the role of the court in assessing whether it can overturn that law, and what's the kind of level of scrutiny that it's going to hold the, the, the state to? And in most cases, and in New York, as an example, the court held that the issue of, of marriage equality was about rational basis. So all the state had to prove was that there was any kind of rational argument that would support them banning same-sex marriage. And if, they're, you know, if they could prove that, the court can't overturn the, the law. In California, they said, no, it's a higher level of scrutiny. The state, it's called strict scrutiny, and it said that the state has to have a compelling state interest in order to deny any kind of rights based on sexual orientation, including marriage. That's really never been held in a, in a sexual orientation case. The other thing that the, the California ruling held was that the harms around denying marriage are not simply about legal rights. There's a, a tangible harm associated with a lack of dignity that goes with creating these kind of alternative arrangements for same-sex couples. And again, that kind of thing has never been held in a, in a court case. And, and what I will add just to the historical argument is that it's not an accident that the California court could rule that way. There's a, centuries, a century worth of jurisprudence around both sexual orientation, but particularly around civil rights, that, that the California court had a body of, of case law that it could draw on to make that decision that didn't necessarily exist in, in other places in the country. So again, I, I would agree with my panelists that I don't think it's an accident that it has occurred in California at all. And you know, if you talk to gay civil rights groups, it was no accident that they filed this case here. I mean, they knew what the jurisprudence was here, and they knew that California had an established track record that, that made it more likely. Man, was there any other point you were willing to make? Well, 
Uh, now that we've established the moral superiority of California <laughs> over New York City, shall we move on to talk about which city's better? You got it. <laughs> so let's just stand up right now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit outnumbered. Kind of like the Lakers in Boston, right? Okay, so who wants to start? Let Nan go. Go. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't need to prove anything. <laughs> but I, I just want to... Um, just describe. Okay. Well, I told you about the Steumann case. So it started in 49 to 51, and I think that was a pretty important thing that happened in San Francisco that really propelled California politics forward. There are a couple of other things that I want to tell you about. In 1961, there was the first open gay man to run for public office for the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. That's what we call our city council. His name was Jose Soya, and he was a, um, a Latino drag queen. And he, he ran for office out of the Black Cat Bar. Um, this, again, sort of the vibrancy of bar politics. And he garnered a fair number of votes. And, and uh, he didn't win, but his, um, his campaign slogan was, gay is good. I mean, this is 61. This is well before mm. the liberation movement or anybody was associating gay with good or even really using the term gay. And then there's a bunch of stuff. I have a cheat sheet. In, 19, in 1975, uh, the county of Santa Cruz was the first county in the U.S. to pass an anti-discrimination ordinance. So that's kind of a cool Northern California first or innovation. And then many, many counties in California followed uh, followed suit, and in 77, you had the election of Harvey Milk, and then his assassination along with San Francisco Mayor George Moscone in, in 78, which I think really propelled California politics in a whole new direction around civil rights and, and protections, as well as the formation of new political coalitions and constellations. Uh, but there are two other things. I mean, there are a number of firsts, I think. The first, San Francisco was one of the first municipalities to recognize transgender civil rights in 1996, passed an ordinance, and it was the home for a number of important civil rights organizations. You're listening to Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco with historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurwitz and demographer Gary Gates, moderated by the Reverend J. Edwin Bacon, Jr. This is Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series. For information on upcoming events or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socolola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment to Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide. How about a little political matchmaking? Who will be standing next to John McCain for the big balloon drop in Minnesota come September? One name keeps coming back, the man McCain beat, Mitt Romney. Would Massachusetts be a good political pairing for Arizona? I'm Pat Morrison. Who would have thought after the millions of hazardous toys recalled last year that there'd be millions more this year? What happened to all the supposed new safeguards? Find out here, Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. 
KPCC's membership department has cleaned house. They found books, CDs, and some cool KPCC logo items, and even a couple of tote bags. And they're on sale. Well, on sale in a manner of speaking. Go to kpcc.org and become a member now. You can choose from all that stuff at reduced membership amounts. Join today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco, with historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurwitz, and demographer Gary Gates, moderated by the Reverend J. Edwin Bacon Jr. ISNA is the intersex society of North America was founded in, in San Francisco as well as FTM International. And these organizations have grown to be tremendously important. But two other things that I think are particularly important is in 1996, I think it was, San Francisco passed that piece of legislation that said anybody doing business with the city had to offer its employees dom domestic partner benefits. And it impacted on the airlines because they do business in the city of San Francisco. And it just was a tremendously important piece of city legislation that had, a, that had a huge, huge impact. And I think that's one of the ways in which San Francisco has kind of in a radical way taken the lead, like the gay marriages in February of 2004, like really kind of taking the lead around initiating kinds of civil rights interventions that were, turns out to be very important for the state of California so that it can do things like pass Stuman versus Riley and this most recent Supreme Court, California Supreme Court case so, Daniel, what's your research showing? I think what, what's intriguing to me is the fact that gay life emerged in Los Angeles and I think in San Francisco in different ways. And I think probably that's true still today, that what gay life feels like in Los Angeles and what gay life feels like in San Francisco is not the same thing. What's striking to me from my work about Los Angeles is, one, that gay life emerged, well, the two places that I tend to think of in Los Angeles as still sort of the hearts of gay community formation, West Hollywood and Silver Lake, were places that long ago were sort of off the map. West Hollywood remained for so long a part of the county, and therefore a part of the Los Angeles region that was unpoliced by the LAPD. And therefore, it became a place where speakeasies operated a place where Hollywood nightclubs of the 30s were set up. And therefore, West Hollywood was kind of a free zone that the Los Angeles police wouldn't enter, and therefore it became a place where gay men and women began to socialize. Silver Lake and Echo Park were off the map, less about in terms of policing, but Silver Lake and Echo Park going back to the teens and 20s were kind of what I write about in my book, these bohemian neighborhoods where initially a great number of artists, writers, painters, but also people involved in the film industry settled in a neighborhood that lacked the grid of much of Los Angeles, but was much more a kind of hilly, as you know it probably, rural outpost. And by the 30s and 40s, a neighborhood that also became infiltrated with leftists, communists, as well as other progressives. And so this was a neighborhood that also not in terms of policing, but in other ways, in terms of cultural and political activity, was off the map of Los Angeles in general. And this then became a neighborhood that cultivated these first waves of gay activism in the city and gay activism in the country. So to me, that's part of what's distinctive about gay life in this city, that it formed in these pockets. Also, one of the things that I've seen different from what Nan talks about in San Francisco is that the people who became active in gay politics in Los Angeles were not always people who found bar life a source of community for them. Many men and women in the 30s and 40s and 50s found looking for dates or sex partners in bars to be a relatively lonely experience. And so for the many people who were active in the world of bars, 
those bars weren't for them a source of community formation, a source of identity, a source of activism. And it really for them, at least in Los Angeles, it was when these political groups began to form in 1950, 51 and forward, that those became places, these organizations became places that men and women went to to start to think about themselves as part of a community, something they hadn't really done much prior to that in this city. So Gary, what's stimulated in your thinking about the demographics of these two well, cities? Well, the, the two cities are actually quite different. And I think when we look at the, the gay demographics of the two cities, uh, the comments about the bar culture, I think, resonates when you look at, at some of the, the demographics. San Francisco, the, the kind of geographic distribution of gay people in San Francisco is one of very spiky neighborhoods. So there's high, high concentrations and high densities of gay people in particular neighborhoods, uh, the Castro being the, the most obvious. And, and while LA also, of course, has high concentrations in Silver Lake and West Hollywood, it doesn't even come close to the Castro. So the, the concentration in the Castro is almost three times that of, of West Hollywood. So to the extent that I think that, that bar culture is a little bit of, of a neighborhood culture, it doesn't at all surprise me that that, that would have a stronger influence in a city like San Francisco. It's, and San Francisco is just demographically, it's more compact than LA. I mean, LA is a horizontal city, very, very spread out. And social networks are equally spread out. I think throughout LA. So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't necessarily know what that spread would have looked like in 1930 or 1940, but certainly currently you, you do see fairly substantial differences. I think the other big demographic difference I would highlight, and, and I'm not sure the degree to which this would play into either of these two theses, is that LA is a much more, there's, there's greater racial and ethnic diversity in the gay population in LA, perhaps partly simply because, again, LA is much more spread. San Francisco is a concentrated metropolitan area, and, and it's an expensive metropolitan area, so it's generally more white than LA as a, as a city. Because of that, gay families in LA look quite a bit different than in San Francisco. Much higher rates of child rearing uh, among same-sex couples in LA than in San Francisco. And that's partly because, and this is another sort of myth and stereotype breaker, child rearing among gay people is dramatically higher in African American and Hispanic, Latino, Latina gay people and lesbians than it is in the white population. It's often two to three times higher. And so it doesn't surprise me that given that LA is a little more diverse, that you get higher rates of child rearing than in San Francisco. One of the things that's interesting about LA's history and how gay politics fits into it, is that LA, and I think this might be different in San Francisco, LA didn't really grapple with its racial diversity until the 40s, until World War II, really. And that grappling, that thinking about, wow, there are minorities in this city, we need to set up political organizations and institutions to address and deal with these racial differences, that grappling happened at the same time that gay men and women were starting to think about themselves as a distinct minority. And so there was a possibility in this city that, I don't know if it's the same in San Francisco, but seems somewhat unique to me. Or, or what happened was that gay people started to think about themselves as comparable to racial minority groups. Hmm. And that happened in the city to some degree, I think, differently than New York, and I wonder about San Francisco, because there wasn't a long history about, oh, these are the racial others, and this is how we deal with them. It was much more, there was a, a, a moment of ferment in the middle of the 20th century in which the notion of a minority group at all opened up, and gay men and women start to tap in in that moment and say, uh-huh, we're like Jews, we're like Mexican-Americans, we're like African-Americans, we're the same as them. And that was an interesting thing about the history of LA that I think allowed gay politics to get started here when it did. And the, the current court ruling, uh, on the marriage ruling, it, for the first time, that issue of strict scrutiny, what that essentially did was it placed sexual orientation in the same category as uh, sex and gender and race and ethnicity in the way that the court treats it. So to the degree that that thesis might be correct, you could argue that that has led then to the court to actually explicitly make that part of, of legal 
theory here in, in California. Would that, be, would that be another point of contrast between the West Coast and the East Coast? Yeah, I mean, the, no rulings. In, there have been rulings in Massachusetts, in New York, in New Jersey. None of them went that far. They did not make that kind of argument. So that's a unique thing to California. You're listening to Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco. Now the Socalo audience asks the questions of our panel. My name is Bill Deverell, and this is a question for Nan. I thought the reference to the gold rush was tantalizing, and usually I'm suspect of drawing connections that far back in terms of cultural or other kinds of development. But do you see a tie between the bar-based culture and bar-based activism and that kind of raucous Barbary Coast era of the gold rush to the rise of gay politics? Uh Yeah, most people who talk about the relationship between gay and lesbian communities in San Francisco and the gold rush cite Susan Johnson's work and those kind of same-sex homosocial environments of the gold rush, right? Kind of lots of men, not a lot of women, but... uh, (laughs) Good times. Yeah. Good times. (laughs) Whatever. Um, (laughs) Now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, but the way the tie that I, the the thing that ties it back for me is about the the tremendous amount of money that came through the city and and what it meant. What, you know, what, what that high finance enabled in uh, sort of early colonial San Francisco and then later kind of the Silver Rush and the Barbary Coast. And uh, I think that the the bar-based activism that I'm tracing is very much about a culture of consumption where, you know, these bars are happening right at the center. They're not off in some sleepy hollow not to be derisive in any way. Um, <laughs> you know, they're at the center of San Francisco's emergent tourist culture. And that's the, I think that's the line back, is that sex, tourism, prostitution, all kinds of illicit anything are happening right at the center of San Francisco. And guess what? That's the community where gay bars and these politicized gay bars emerge. It's in North Beach, right? It's not, the Castro didn't really exist. Castro was the Sleepy Hollow. So it's happening in North Beach, yeah, so... Rob McClelland. I have a question. It's more pointed toward you, Gary, and um, it, it has to do with the new measure that's going on the bill mm-hmm. to sort of change the Constitution. Right. How is that going to impact the um, new ruling that has led to the gay marriages this week? Well, How it could would, it? it? Well, it would essentially negate the ruling because the ruling is based on, on constitutional principles in California, and it would add a provision to the Constitution saying that marriage is only between a man and a woman. It's very unclear what it would do to existing marriages. There's a school of legal thought that says that, well, in fact, it's California law that a referendum can't be retroactive unless it's explicitly stated so in the referendum, which this is not. So some argue that because that retroactivity is not there, that those marriages would remain in place. And furthermore, the truth is, if that were challenged, it's going to go to the same court that made this ruling already. So it, you know, that you could argue that there's some evidence that they would they would remain, but there's also a risk that the courts could nullify the marriages. Hi, my name is Gail Chandler, and this is for Gary. Hi, you talked about the income difference between straight men and gay men. Right. What about lesbians and straight women and transgender FTM or MTF? Do you have any data there? Great, great question. Lesbians, actually, this is the other persistent finding. Relative to other women, lesbians generally make more, have higher earnings than other women. I, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that, that historically, lesbians had lower rates of childbearing, and so their, their broader lifetime labor force participation. We find that early, younger lesbians, there's, they don't have an advantage, that the advantage sort of happens later in life. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of that is, is about sort of just less career disruption. The transgender question is a great one. And when I talked earlier about invisibility, in data, transgender is even more invisible than anything we talk around sexual orientation. All the evidence we have is that there's an enormous amount of discrimination around transgender and that uh, earnings and, and reports of you know, income and stuff are, are much lower than the population. There's an interesting line of research, though, that suggests that there's some big differences between those who transition from male to female and those who transition female to male. And it sadly goes to, stere- to sex stereotype that men who transition to female suffer economically for that and women who transition to male benefit. 
and it's it's very very new and and nascent research, but there is some pre preliminary evidence of that. My name is Albert, and I had a question based on one of the comments about the first gay church starting in Los Angeles. And since we have a moderator who is the rector of a gay-friendly church, is there any kind of historical information about gay or gay-friendly religious organizations in each respective city and what those religions or, or denominations or, or parishes contributed to gay life in those respective cities? I can talk a little bit about that if you want to start. Yeah, no, jump in. In San Francisco, there was an organization called Council for Religion and the Homosexual that was formed in 1964. It was a coalition of all the, again, what was called homophile organizations or early gay and lesbian civil rights organizations that got together to work with the police. So it's kind of an interesting talking about issues in the church and acceptance within the church, and then it evolves into this kind of anti-police violence project. So it's kind of a an interesting evolution of, of interests, but initially focusing on relationships with the church. And it was the ministers who were involved in the Council for Religion and the Homosexual in 64 that really made a big difference in, in 65 in this event that I described that sort of closes my book, where there was a surprisingly you know brutal police kind of shutting down an event that had police permissions. And the, the ministers were shocked and and, and sort of stood up and were on the front page of the paper the next day and outraged, and, and it really shifted public opinion. So those, that coalition really made a big difference for politics in San Francisco. In L.A., I'm, I was trying to remember the name of the church. There was a church that the Mattachine activists, this first gay rights group, used to hold their first major conference. My memory, which is not terrific, is that it was an Episcopalian church. And in part, that's affirmed by my memory that in New York in the 70s it was also an Episcopalian church there that many of the later gay liberation groups used for some of their meetings so that that was a denomination that was friendly to gay activism. You've just heard Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco with historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurwitz and demographer Gary Gates, moderated by J. Edwin Bacon Jr., rector at All Saints Church in Pasadena, California. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stensholt. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.